Hey everyone, welcome back to the Goodbye Privacy Podcast. I am your host, James Azar. Find me on Twitter, James underscore Azar1, or follow the link below this very video to follow me there. Today's episode, one year after the GDPR, is the EU really private? We're also going to talk about Israel defends the Eurovision Song Contest, and the city of Baltimore suffers a massive ransomware attack. But before we start, let's talk about patreon.com forward slash cyberhubengage, where you can support our podcast and help us grow our content. Being a loyal cyberhubengage followers follower means you care about your security and privacy, and you know we care about it too. We spend hours upon hours highlighting all the different ways you can be more secure and exercise privacy and where people take our privacy for granted. This is why we're asking you, our loyal listener, and viewer to help support us and you get a lot of really cool benefits in return you get to watch this very podcast live and interact with me during the goodbye privacy podcast by supporting us for ten dollars a month you get to join me each and every single week as i record this very podcast ask questions you get first access to it before it's posted anywhere else and you get an exclusive q a session you also get some really cool swag including some mugs t-shirts and all kinds of other really neat privacy stuff so make sure you go to patreon.com forward slash cyber engage again that's patreon.com forward slash cyber engage p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash cyber engage and support us there now the city of Baltimore fell victim to a ransomware attack that crippled the, th- the city last week. Computer servers were shut down initially, but the virus didn't reach the critical public safety systems. The hackers demanded 13 Bitcoin, which is right around $92,000, to be paid to them by the end of Friday of last week. That's May 17th. In order to provide the city with a decryption key to get access to all their data. Now, this isn't the first time the city of Baltimore was breached. In fact, in March of 2018, the emergency 911 system in Baltimore was also attacked and had to switch to an analog system in order to take people's emergency 911 calls. Agents with the FBI cyber squad are assisting the city with the incident. It appears hackers have locked down some very critical data for the city and the city risks losing a lot of data if it didn't pay by the deadline on Friday, May 17th. The city has struggled to answer questions about the breach, and many blame the city for a lack of transparency. However, the information here doesn't trump the investigation that needs to take place in order to find those responsible for the attack. It's been known that paying a ransom doesn't always mean you get your data back. This breach continues to highlight the municipal challenges of allocating funding to cybersecurity instead of other projects that taxpayers want to see in their city. Here's the challenge here, folks. Number one, you can't expect transparency in the middle of a cyber attack. Like you can't expect transparency when a murder investigation is going on. Those just don't work together. That's number one. The investigation has to be separate and it has to be conducted with some sort of privacy and some sort of secrecy in order to not tip off the perpetrators of the attack. That's first aspect. Number two, municipalities, I believe, have the toughest job of all when it comes to cybersecurity. 
because when a mayor gets elected, he's promising newer parks, better roads, he's got a very limited budget, and he's trying to stretch it. Therefore, what we frequently witness is the following. Allocating money between upgrading the IT infrastructure of the city to building a new road or park that's going to help him get reelected later. And obviously, because of the way people vote, we do not measure cybersecurity safety at the polls. No one talks about it. But everyone talks about new roads, congestion, all the different things that affect their everyday single life. And so until that priority changes within the voting public, we can expect to see more municipalities get attacked. We all remember the attack in the city of Atlanta last year, almost a year ago, March of last, uh, almost a year ago, no, a little over a year ago, I think it was March of last year when the city of Atlanta attack really took place. So having said that, I urge every single one of you to really start supporting a cyber infrastructure within your own municipality and ask that question because only then will a municipality start really investing in upgrading its cybersecurity. And now to today's episode. GDPR entered enforcement about a year ago. For those who have lived in a cave (laughs) in the years leading up to the enforcement of GDPR, it is the European Union's general data privacy regulation dictating the rights of consumers to their own data and the company's responsibility to the data they actually obtain, process, or do anything with. Considered by many to be the framework for many privacy regulations in the world, in fact, the California Consumer Protection Act was modeled after GDPR. So what has the first year of GDPR really revealed? European privacy authorities have received nearly 65,000 data breach notifications since the EU's new privacy law went into full effect. In addition, regulators in 11 European countries have imposed $63 million in fines in, in, in violations of the General Data Protection Regulation. So says a new European Data Protection Board report that provides the first overview of the implementation of the GDPR and the roles and means of the National Supervisory Authorities, or SAS. The Brussels-based EDPB is an independent European body created as part of GDPR, which went live on the same day as the start of the regulation enforcement, May 25, 2018. The EDPB's mandate is to ensure that that data protection rules get applied consistently throughout the EU, as well as encourage the EU's data protection authorities to cooperate. The report draws on data provided by many countries in the EU economic area, which includes all 28 EU member states as well as Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway, which also comply with GDPR. Data in the report covers the first nine months of GDPR having gone into full effect. The total number of GDPR cases reported by the SAS from 31 EEAs, that's the European Economic Area countries, is 206,326, the report says. Such cases include complaints. Under Article 77 of GDPR, right to complain to a supervisory authority, Europeans can file complaints with regulators about organization data protection practices, as they were also able to do before enactment of the new regulation. Such cases also include data breach notification among its provisions. GDPR requires organizations that suffer a breach that may have exposed Europeans' personal information to notify the relevant authorities. 
The majority of the cases are related to complaints, notably 94,622, while 64,684 were initiated on the basis of data breach notifications by the controller. The EDPB report says of these cases, 52% have been closed and 1% are the subject of lawsuits before national courts. Any EU member state can initial a GDPR investigation into an organization's data security and privacy practices. But any organization that has its main establishment in a European country, in other words, a European headquarters, can qualify for a one-stop shop mechanism under GDPR that ensures that only the privacy watchdog in the country in which it is headquartered conducts any privacy investigation. Specifically meaning that Germany can investigate a Britain company or the Brits can investigate a Belgium company, or the Dutch can investigate a French company. What this also means is it puts Ireland in the forefront of many investigations because Facebook and many other companies have their European headquarters there. 15, so Facebook, Twitter, other technology firms with EU headquarters in Ireland include Apple, Microsoft, Twitter, Dropbox, Airbnb, LinkedIn, Oath, WhatsApp, Yelp, Match Technology, which owns Match.com, OkCupid, Plenty of Fish, and Tinder. And Google is in the process of making Ireland its EU main establishment. Since GDPR went into effect, six one-stop shop cases have been launched, the EDPP report says. Where there is no one-stop shop mechanism in place for cross-border organizations, the SAS from involved countries must reach an agreement about who will take the lead. Since May 25th of 2018, 642 procedures have been initiated to identify the lead SAS and the concerned SAS in cross-border cases, the report noted. Of those, 306 of the cases have been closed. Up to now, no dispute has arisen on the selection of the lead SA. It adds that, it adds, which means that many cross-border cooperations appear to be working. The EDPB's report, again, examining the first nine months of GDPR going into full effect, serves as an update for research released by law firm DLA Piper, which examined the first eight months of GDPR. And you can see that in that report specifically, they claim that there's been over 59,000 data, um, data breach reports filed in the first eight months of GDPR. Based on our own research, the report continues to say, covering 23 of the 28 EU member states together with figures from Norway, Iceland, and Liechtenstein, the three additional European Economic Area member states, we calculated that there have been 59,430 reported data breaches over the same period across the report, the DLA Piper said. The Netherlands, Germany, and the United Kingdom came top of the table with targets with the largest number of data breaches notified to supervisory authorities with approximately 15,400 for the Dutch, 12,600 for the Germans, and 10,600 for the British. The EDPP findings include some similar caveats in that not every EU or EEA member has shared data. Notably, data from the UK is absent from all charts contained in the EDPB's report. Britain's privacy regulator, the Information Commissioner's Office, did not immediately respond to why the Brits are off the report, although that could be attributed to the Brexit um, movement that is going on currently in Europe and the fact that they don't really want to be part of the EU anymore. 
But before we proceed on this, I want to invite you to join us on September 11th, 2019 in beautiful Atlanta, Georgia for the annual CyberHub Summit. CyberHub Summit is the, is the go-to cybersecurity event for executives and those passionate about cybersecurity. The conference isn't just another summit with a bunch of speakers and panels, but rather CyberHub Summit focuses on helping attendees experience cyber different. This year, CyberHub Summit has an amazing agenda of how we can all work to address critical threats to organizations, critical infrastructure, and our financial system. Join us on September 11th in 2019 in Atlanta, Georgia. You can go to cyberhubsummit.com forward slash James, cyberhubsummit.com forward slash James. Again, that's cyberhubsummit.com forward slash James for more information and to pre-register now for the event as it is sure to sell out quickly. Now back to our episode. The steady increase in data breach notification, most recently from 59,000 as of January to 65,000 in February, does not mean that breaches are occurring more or less frequently, says Brian Honan. Rather, more breaches are simply being brought to light thanks to GDPR's mandatory breach notification. Paul Chichester, Operations Director at Britain's National Cybersecurity Center, the public face arm of the intelligence agency GCHQ, says that while GDPR is bringing breaches to light, he doesn't think their frequency has shifted much over the past year. I don't, th- and I quote, I don't think it's dramatically changed the number of volume, the number or volume of breaches that we've been seeing, he told Information Security Media Group during a recent press conference in Scotland. What has massively changed is awareness, he said. People are much more interested in preparing for breaches, and we have seen people preparing for what they want to do after a breach. For European as well as privacy advocates, that may well be the best measure of whether GDPR is dodged to be a success. While we debate privacy laws in the U.S. and each state is drafting its own privacy legislation, what can the first year of GDPR teach us here and what a GDPR-like law can do in the U.S. And on this part, folks, for those who have been listening to the CyberHub Engage podcast last year leading up to GDPR and the enforcement of it, I was very vocal on the fact that GDPR has a unbelievable impact on small businesses. And I'm about to support that with facts a year later and why I think the U.S. should go through a different process than GDPR to ensure that it doesn't affect the small businesses who have to spend a lot of time and money to comply with this type of regulation. And to back that up, here's what I have to say. First, the cost of compliance with complicated data regulation is not cheap. And as a result, some companies may choose to leave the market altogether than comply. According to a PwC survey, more than 40% of companies surveyed, including American companies with a data presence in the EU, spent over $10 million preparing to comply with GDPR. $10 million. For video game sellers to various news outlets, including the Los Angeles Times, some companies found the cost too high to continue to do business in Europe and removed themselves altogether from the EU. For others that chose to remain, things remain uncertain. In some cases, courts and countries continue to work through interpretations, often with differing results. This 
is what I've been saying about GDPR for a very long time. It is unclear. Parts of it are vague. It takes companies out of a market altogether. It's overpriced and the barrier of entry ensures that only the big players can continue to play and all the small players go out, which is bad for consumers because it doesn't give you a lot of options. Now, almost a year later, many of these companies still have not returned to Europe. Some might argue this is not necessarily a bad thing. If new, more privacy-sensitive companies take their place, yet venture capital investments in startups in the Europe post-GDPR is down by over $3 million, according to the National Bureau of Economic Research study. As a result, as a result of this, there were likely 3,000 to 30,000 fewer jobs in the EU. So now we have facts to support that the EU, that the GDPR regulation in the EU not only doesn't support small business, it takes capital investments away from startups in the region. So there's less jobs, less innovation, less opportunity. This is why the danger in the U.S. is having 50 different privacy laws across 50 different states. This could cause a similar separation in the U.S. More on that here in just a minute. Large companies are not immune from the effects of cumbersome regulatory schemes, but policies like the GDPR are more difficult on new entrants struggling to find footing in the market. The immediate aftermath of GDPR Large players in the targeted advertising space were able to grow or maintain their market share. Newer and smaller players seem to struggle. Again, supporting the fact that bigger companies stand to benefit from GDPR, something I've been saying now for over a year. While we shouldn't assume big is bad, right? Strict top-down regulations like the GDPR will make it more difficult for new companies on, and competitors to challenge existing players. In the long term, we may get a, a static market in which the next Google fails to emerge and improve upon what more established tech giants are doing. Exactly the point. The point here is that when regulation is entered unilaterally to fine and hold companies, and the Europeans have been fining companies like Facebook, Google, Microsoft, in the billions of euros, billions of euros. All GDPR is, is a cash grab because of a failed socialistic agenda in the EU. Most of these EU nations run in some form of socialism or another. That's why the UK wanted to get out of the EU to begin with. And now we're seeing the aftermath of GDPR, which is driving small business out of business, pretty much stalling innovation, creating a static marketplace with less options, and eliminating jobs in the EU economy. But here's another caveat. It may be worth it for consumers to have the extra privacy. But really, are European consumers actually safer than they were before GDPR? So the opt-in changes that we've all seen in the last year come into our email box, essentially asking us to opt-in again. Like the click-throughs where users must approve of websites use of cookies before proceeding do not appear to actually increase consumer decision-making regarding privacy. Similarly, when email inboxes were filled with an updated privacy policy in the weeks leading up to GDPR, it did not appear to lead to real changes in their online behavior. GDPR's requirement 
that companies respond quickly to user requests for larger amounts of data and harsh penalties for failing to comply may not always be the silver bullet for portability or transparency. For example, in one incident, Amazon sent 1,700 Alexa recordings to the wrong user. Laying out some of these consequences is not to say that we shouldn't place a premium on internet privacy. Rather, it's to point out that pursuing privacy is not without trade-offs with other things that we value or benefit from. There are already a wide variety of options for individuals to make choices about their own privacy, and we hold a wide variety of individual privacy preferences in the first place. So here's the point here, folks. We are entitled to our own privacy. Some people use VPN. We've all heard of VPNs that almost eliminate or kind of put your footprint off the map or distort it slightly so that no one really knows who you really are. In most cases, and as I've pointed out in previous episodes of Goodbye Privacy, there are ways for you to maintain your privacy based on settings. The fact is that most people are very lazy to do that or could care less doing so. As the United States debates whether or not to implement its own comprehensive federal privacy laws, we should pay attention to the recent lessons of GDPR. A U.S. GDPR may sound comforting, but perhaps we should simply adapt the more permissionless notice and choice approach that has always allowed us to lead the world in innovation and reap tremendous benefits. As a result, we may be able to find more solutions with fewer negative consequences. Here's, one of my, here's the point on this one, folks. And I'm going to summarize this whole GDPR thing here. Laws in privacy shouldn't target the smaller business. We have a strict and serious challenge when it comes to privacy laws in the U.S. And those privacy laws come in multiple forms and factors. The first, if we limit our innovation, we may destroy our booming economy that's been booming and, and it's on a record that it's been in the last 70 years, according to recent reports. Furthermore, we're seeing more investment come into the U.S. with more emerging hubs. All over the southeast, we're seeing new technology innovation hubs rise up. Nashville, Atlanta, uh, Jacksonville, Tampa, Charleston, Charlotte, Raleigh-Durham, uh, Birmingham, Alabama, Huntsville, Alabama. We are seeing an increase of people investing in small communities that were once forgotten about in technology innovation. Any sort of privacy law, like the California Consumer Protection Act, which is scheduled to be enforced July 1st of 2020, could hinder the growth of the U.S. and limit some of these companies' access to the California marketplace, which is 54 million people. So the question is, we don't need states to regulate privacy. We do need a federal law, but the federal law should be vague and should really hold what people can do with our information and what right we have to be forgotten. Simply that. It shouldn't be to the point of where GDPR tells companies how to manage data or how quick to notify us of a breach. At times, notifying a consumer of a breach within 72 hours can not only hinder an investigation, but it can tip off the hackers that they've been on 
that have been discovered and thus hinder an investigation to find and attribute the attack to a specific party. Which is why when we started this episode and I spoke about the city of Baltimore and the complaint for the lack of transparency, I backed that up by saying sometimes we need to have little public information so that the law enforcement agencies that are investigating this, including the FBI, can do so without having any information leaking which can tip off the hackers or the perpetrators of the crime and thus limit attribution and being able to take consequences and being able to pursue those who are guilty of it. I'm a firm believer that we do need to have some sort of privacy regulation in the U.S. And I've said that before. But it shouldn't come at the price of business. And it shouldn't come at the price of innovation. And that's a very, very difficult job to do, especially for our lawmakers. But when they ran for office, they knew that they were signing up to make very difficult decisions. And it's on them now to do just that. And it's on us as the population to hold them accountable to just that. And I want to conclude today's episode with a good story. So for those, uh, one of the most popular singing contests in the world, the Eurovision contest was held last week in Tel Aviv, Israel. And it was uh, held in Israel because Israel won the contest last year. And like most things, Israel's name just brings about controversy and so forth. But the Eurovision is a politics-free contest. In fact, it has very strict rules on the fact that no politics should ever interrupt the competition itself. The contest, viewed by over 200 million people in Europe, Australia, and other parts of the world, is a week-long celebration of songwriters and performers working hard to represent their countries in the World Cup of Songs. The Israeli Cyber Authority was responsible for securing all broadcasting channels, and on Tuesday, hackers were actually successful in defacing Khan, Israel's broadcast network's website, and parts of their broadcast. And at that point, many of us thought that here we go, they could try and hinder the broadcast itself as the semifinals approached on Wednesday and Thursday with the grand finale on Saturday night. However, the rest of the week went smooth. And on Sunday morning, we learned that since Tuesday's attack, the Israeli cyber authority stopped multiple different cyber attacks against the broadcast itself, against some of the reporters that were there broadcasting and delivering live news feeds in their respective countries, and against some of the artists that had come to Israel to be part of the Eurovision celebration and contest itself. The Israelis indicated that they were able to throw off multiple attacks, and I quote, and ensure a successful broadcast and a finale to the contest itself. Although Madonna was the real hack of the entire Eurovision contest, everything else went smooth and silky. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. Next time on Goodbye Privacy, data brokers and how to use our data to make a ton of money. That's it for today. My name is James Azar. You are listening to the Goodbye Privacy Podcast. Make sure you follow us, subscribe, and set up your notifications. That's it for this time. Sending you off till next week.